Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories. This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. If you've ever had that thought that everyone else seems to have all of their shit together and you're hoping that you can just make it to bed before biting someone's head off, then this conversation will lift up the veil to the truth that we're all just trying to figure it out. Today's guest has experienced some extraordinary levels of success throughout her life. As a teenager, Gian Rooney was faced with the choice of diving, yes, pun intended, into the swimming career or pursuing a career in Nepal. She chose swimming and went on to compete on the world stage, winning an Olympic gold medal and breaking a world record amongst other achievements. In this conversation, we talk about Gian's transition from elite sports into her next career as a TV presenter and media personality. Whilst she has had many accolades, Gian shares the raw and honest experience of feeling like she was failing at parenthood after the birth of her son, Xander, and the way that she is navigating this role as a mum to both her son, Xander, and to her daughter, now Lexi. She also talks about how she believes that insecurities are the root of all evil. This was such an aha moment for me to realise that the truth is all of us have these things that we are insecure about, but when we hold on to these, it leads to nowhere good. We could have chatted for hours because there's a depth and wisdom and interest in things that I'm sure that you will love too as you hear from Gian Rooney. Jan, welcome to the studio. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's awesome to be hanging out with you. Not that anyone can see because obviously this is audio and podcast, but you're on a lounge with a Himalayan salt lamp <laughs> behind you. I feel like we need a glass of wine. I love it. There's <laughs> plants. I feel relaxed yeah. and chilled and it's a really nice, calm environment. Awesome. Yeah. Who knows where this is going to go, right? Watch our world. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you've had um, a whole bunch of and I use this word loosely, but success and and, um, pinnacles that you've gotten to throughout your career in a whole range of different areas. One of those that you are well known for is your swimming career. Uh, You're a two-time Olympian. Yes. Can you take me back and I guess share where were you and what was that moment like when you were first announced on an Australian Olympic team? Amazing. I think I probably even need to take it a step further back. The first time I was announced on Australian swimming team, which I was 15, we were going to the Commonwealth Games in Kuala Lumpur in 1998. And it wasn't, it it was such a big deal for me because to explain how unexpected it was for me to make that team uh, is pretty simple. I made an Australian swim team before I made the Queensland swim team. Right. So were there better swimmers in Queensland? Well, I think it, it, I just, uh, as I said, I was 15. I had probably only been dedicating my life to the sport for the last 12 to 18 months. So up until uh, I only really started squad training at 11, I used to play netball in the winter, swim in the summer, up until the age of of nearly 14. And uh, then my coach, Dennis Cottrell, sat me down and said, okay, you have a, a lot of talent, you could do something in the world of swimming, but if you want to, you have to start now. And it needs to be winter training, it needs to be morning training if you're going to give this a shot, the time is now. 
So it was a family discussion, <laughs> sit down, family discussion. My parents, Bruce and Jan, and even my younger brother, Byron, um, would discuss everything around dinner. And it was very much about what I wanted and what I wanted to do, but I loved my netball. I wasn't quite sure if I was ready to give that up. Uh, what uh, was I getting myself into? And my dad was amazing. I'll never forget this conversation where he was like, well, in my eyes, gee, y- you can go one of two ways. But the way I see it, netball is a sport that you can always come back to. It will always be there, even if you don't come back to it until you're well into the middle of your life and you go back as a, in a social aspect. It will always be there. Whereas swimming, if you want to give this a proper shot, you have to do it now. You have to do it when you're young. You have to do it now. This is your chance. So why not have a crack? Give it 100%. See what happens. If it doesn't work out, at least you've got no regrets and you can go back to your netball. Okay, dad, that sounds great. (laughs) So I applied myself and I think I had a very competitive spirit from a young age. I never had ideas about going to an Olympics or making it my career, really. It it all happened so fast, but the catalyst for the ongoing career was making that first Australian swim team. So to explain, I came third at the Australian National Championships, which doubled as, as the selection trials, and third place was up to selectors. First two places were guaranteed, third place was up to selectors. They took me because I was young, so they thought that it would be great experience. Uh, so I was as surprised as anyone else that not only that I got third, but they they took me. So I was in year 11 at All Saints Anglican School on the Gold Coast, and uh, all of a sudden people knew and understood really what I did every morning and every night. And <laughs> she just disappears and comes <laughs> in with wet exactly hair. Exactly right, wet hair and stinks <laughs> of chlorine and <laughs> leaves parties early and all the rest of it. Um, and so my whole world changed um, when that happened and it was actually being, we had a, a pre-camp in Singapore where the whole Australian swim team was there. I got to, all of a sudden I wasn't only talking to my heroes and my idols and people that I looked up to. I was rooming with them. I'm rooming with Susie O'Neill at 15 and she is treating me like an equal. And I learnt so much from her and from those around me and felt so incredibly grateful to have this experience and this opportunity to learn from the best. Uh, Did and that so drive you, that drive that it. competitive nature Absolutely. So before even, even higher? Even I, before I even got to compete at the Commonwealth Games, it was like the light bulb moment of, okay, this is amazing, this was a surprise, but this is what I want to do from now on. I get this. I don't ever want to not be a part of an Australian swimming team. So before that moment happened, as I said, I didn't have any real ideas of making this my career or being successful at it. I just knew that I loved to swim and I was competitive and I loved racing. And all of a sudden, this magical experience it was happening to me and I never wanted it to end. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Amazing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so where Australian diamonds were going, you're disappearing. Yeah. <laughs> Swimming, <laughs> obviously, it took you yep. by hold. That competitive nature, do you have any sense of where that came from growing up even before you were 15? I'm guessing it must be in our family somewhere. I I don't look at my parents and say they're particularly competitive. They do, both of them want to get the best out of themselves, which I guess is along a similar line, a similar wave. Uh, But I certainly don't see them as competitive and probably where 
swimming helped me is in that same line is that I'm very competitive against myself. I'm not particularly competitive against others. And I find this now in my life after sport, I'm not competitive in my life. A lot of athletes go on to be competitive and need to find something to be competitive with in life after. I don't have that. It was just the perfect storm of something that I worked incredibly hard for and wanted really badly brought out the competitive spirit in me with myself, um, which is fantastic in a sport like swimming because you can't control what anyone else is going to do. You can only control your own performance. And so I feel quite grateful that I found something that was incredibly perfect for my personality, for me. That makes sense because it's just you, your lane, whatever you turn up with Mm. and however you deliver on that day in that moment for those seconds or those milliseconds that even kind of matter then. Is there a meet that kind of stands out in your mind as being a defining moment meet for Um, you? I think that my first one definitely was. Um, to explain, I'm 15 years old, to explain uh, how perfect the sport was for me. And I didn't recognise this and my coach didn't recognise this either until we got to um, the Commonwealth Games. I'm 15, as I said. I've been through the whole village atmosphere, everything like that, the training camp, the lead-in, everyone's so excited. And then we get to my competition of the 100 backstroke heats and I perform pretty badly. And my coach, Dennis, you know, I get out of the water and he's like, well, what happened? I said, Dennis, I'm not excited. I'm not nervous. I feel like I'm just at regional championships. I don't, I don't, I expected to feel this incredible sense of wow. And I don't, I'm a little bit underwhelmed. And he recognised very quickly, and thank goodness he did, that I was an athlete that needed to be nervous. I needed that big meat feel, that sense of responsibility um, of, of occasion. And so between heats and finals, he figured out a plan. And before finals, he uh, sat me down before I got in the warm-up pool and he said, well, aren't you a spoilt little brat? And I went, I'd never thought of myself like that. No one had ever spoken to me like that. And this was his way. He actually got quite angry at me. And he actually was like, do you realise how many people would kill to be in your shoes? Do you realise how many people you beat that should be here, that you shouldn't have beaten, that should be here? Do you realise how many people are at home watching you? Do you realise your parents are sitting in the stands and they've got expectations of all the time? They've given up driving you to training and giving up their life so that you could live your dream and you're just going to let them down by not being a big enough occasion. And I was like, Oh, so he actually, wow. and what he was doing, which that I didn't recognise at the time. Because yes. for someone else that would have melted. Absolutely. He knew me well enough to know that that was going to get me angry and fired up. And I needed, I needed to have that feeling to perform. So it was such a defining moment for me that it, it absolutely worked. I came out and won the thing. So from not expecting to make the team, to not expecting to make the final, to not expecting to win it. And at 15, I I win a fairly major international competition. And that was such a defining moment on so many levels because all of a sudden coach had figured out athlete. Athlete had started to figure out themselves. um, And I had discovered a whole new level of where I needed to be and where I needed to get to. And I had developed my first taste of addiction, which was winning, which would go on to be my motivator and my confidence booster for the rest of my career. 
It must be a strong addiction because there's a long time between meets. Well. There's a long time. <laughs> and the best way to explain it is that I say that if we could, if swimmers could be like footballers where we play week in, week out on a big stage with a big crowd and big expectation, I would still be 55 and trying to make an Australian swim team to, to have that feeling because I, by the end of it particularly, hated training. I hated training but I loved racing and I couldn't do one without the other. And as you said, there is a long time between getting doing the part you hate to doing the part you love in my circumstance. And I constantly had to keep reminding myself of that addiction and going back and feeling that euphoria of standing atop the metal dais because that's what, every time that happened, I was good for another 12 months. <laughs> Can you describe even now what that feels like? It's very hard to describe because uh, it's so personal. And I think for me, it, 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 it was a justification for, I don't ever call them sacrifices, but of what I had put into my sport that I had not missed out on, but that I had missed from teenage years, from from those very formative years of your life um, with friendships and relationships. And I had missed them because I had this thing that felt so much bigger than anything else that I was a part of. And I felt like I, I needed to give it its due. And I think from quite a, that moment, almost that 15 years old, what I wanted out of my swimming career more than anything was to not have any regrets. That's all I wanted to, was to not have any regrets. I never wanted to look back and said, say, if only I'd worked harder, if only I'd done this better, if only, you know, then this would have happened or maybe I would have had a shot at this. Um, I just wanted to leave and have no regrets. And so... I look back at those those moments and those training sessions that I didn't want to be there, but in a sport that is won and lost by a hundredth of a second in some circumstances, every single training session counts, every um, moment of every day counts because even when you're recovering in recovery mode or having a massage or having a physio treatment or whatever it is, that is still all going into your sport and race day. So when it's only done once a year at the top level, twice a year when you consider um, Australian championships at the domestic level, um, you don't get second chances. There's a, there's a lot of room for regret and I just didn't want that. Now looking back to you, do you think you were successful in that? Yes, because that's when I knew it was time to retire. <laughs> <laughs> How did that come about? When did that realisation um, Another fascinating moment and to explain you know, making my first team at 15, uh, making all my decisions through every training session, through every week, you know, I often try to describe to people, it's six to seven hours a day, six days a week, 50 weeks of the year, what ended up being 12 years of my life. When you say everything, it's not just your sport, it's your life, everything goes into it. And uh, I was 23 I was six months out from competing at the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne in 2006 and I had a light bulb moment. I explained before how I hated training by the end, but I still loved racing. But I had a light bulb moment six, six months out of the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne where I realised for the first time that I was proud of myself. 
and it was quite an emotional realisation. Did anything I, prompt that or was it I, just a... No, I just was training, swimming up and down, and I realised I was proud of myself. I realised that I actually, actually took stock and remembered the achievements that I'd had up to that point. Whereas before it was always like, okay, well, you're only as good as your next race. So always looking forward. That's that's great and this is feeding the addiction and I'm, you know, yee-haw, euphoric, but what's next? How do I how, how do I get to the point where this happens again? Yeah. I and need to feel this feeling again. I can imagine competitors are breathing down my neck. They're Absolutely. not going to stop. I can't stop. Absolutely. Yes. You know, if I miss a training session, that's a training session my competitors are doing. Um, and for me, that's where I got my confidence was working hard. That's where I got the ability to stand up on the block on race day. And while I was, you know, they'd call your name behind the block, you know, in lane six from Australia, Gian Rooney. And I would get up with a big smile on my face and wave to the crowd like a cheerleader. And in my head was a completely different person. In my head was, okay, get the fuck out of my way, bitches. This is mine. (laughs) (laughs) And that is such a different, um, you know, when that comes out of my mouth, most people are so shocked to hear that from me because that's not what I looked like when I was waving to the crowd with a big yeah. smile on my face. But that's the grit and but the that's determination. What I, yes, that gets, that's yeah. where I got my confidence from was by doing the work. I, I wasn't particularly naturally talented, so to speak, but I, I do pride myself on being able to work hard in training sessions and, and that's where I got my confidence from on race day. So, um, you know, I'd... I'd was very good at putting the work in at training, but this particular training session, I recognised I was proud of myself, the fact that I had worked really hard for a long period of time and for the most part it had paid off and, you know, I was reliving moments and and uh, points in time where I was successful and, as I said, I realised I was proud of myself and I'd never had that feeling before. And very quickly after that in the same training session came the realisation, well, if I'm proud of myself then I've actually lost, I believe, the hunger and that absolute grit and anger that is required in a sport that's lost and won and lost by a hundredth of a second. So I've lost that, that, that 100%, if you like. Um, and even looking back, that's quite deep for a 23-year-old. I'm just having goosebumps <laughs> yeah. just thinking that's, about that's that. That's quite it's, profound for a 23-year-old. Yeah. Um, so I think I always had an old head on young shoulders, but that came with the realisation again that, okay, well, if I'm proud of myself and I've lost that 100th percent or that thousandth percent that I need to do this properly, um, I then started to think about, well, if I died tomorrow, would the only thing that anyone be able to say about me was that I could swim fast? How boring. There's other things I want to do. There's other things I want to prove to myself and to others that I can do. There's, I don't want this to define me. I I want to explore what other options I have in my life. And it was actually very empowering because all of a sudden I was like, right, well, I've got six months to do everything possible so that I can walk away from this sport at the top of my game, on my terms, my choice. And let's go and see what else life has to offer. So very defining moments at, at different stages of my career. As you say, so deep at that age mm. um, and to have a sense that there's life after this, there's more to me, there's yes. something else, is unusual. Yes. Probably at that inner pinnacle of your career. Yes. It's often something that needs to be explored 
once that certainty becomes a reality. Definitely. But for you to actually be crafting that yourself, mm. seeing it before it came, mm. is really fascinating. Even at that point, did you have a glimmer about what maybe some of those other things you'd like to explore were? I didn't really. The only thing that probably helped me, looking back, there's quite a few things. I, I'm i very much a realist. Um, my parents are realists. Uh, they did little things that they weren't even realised they were doing, uh, where they would take me in interns, they were taking interns to drive me to the pool every morning at 4.45, never complained. But they didn't even think about it. It had to be my alarm that went off. So it was my alarm that went off that I would go and wake one of them to take me to the pool, not their alarm going off, waking me. So it always had to be my dream. It always had to be my motivation. They were 100% supportive, but certainly not pushy because they knew that it had to come from me. There was no point them driving driving you. it, no. Mm. So that was one very clever thing that they did without even realising. The second was, and this is very realistic, uh, they'd seen so many athletes put everything into their sport and it hadn't worked out or they, they hadn't um, got anything from it. So education was incredibly important. In fact, it was a non-negotiable. And if my grades started dropping at school, the rule was I had to start dropping a training session until they went back up. So dropping a training session was just not an option because that's where I got my confidence from, being able to compete. So I kept my grades up at school. I did whatever I could to keep my grades up, which satisfied my parents because they knew that I would always have an education to fall back on. Um, but it satisfied me because it meant that I didn't have to drop a training session, so I didn't have to win, find win. An, exactly right. <laughs> She's a clever parent. So they're very clever without even realising it. Uh, so in terms of that, I, I had a good education behind me and I was also very fortunate that at the time, uh, I, at, at 23, I'd had a couple of years of being sponsored by Channel 9. And Channel 9 were extraordinary. I got to know the head of sport. Um, Gary was amazing. We used to have some great conversations. And he used to say, what do you want to do when you hang up your togs? And I was like, I don't really know. But I know that I was no good at maths and science at school, but I loved English. I loved vocabulary. I loved reading. I loved writing. I always thought that maybe I'd, I'd go down the path of sports journalism or travel journalism, one of the two, because I love travel. It was like, all right, we might be able to help you out. When you do decide to walk away, give me a call, come and see me. So nice I had that contact. <laughs> exactly right. And uh, that's exactly what I did. And um, I went into Channel 9 and they were so supportive. And I thought that maybe they'd, I could do some work experience, uh, you know, behind the scenes and, and maybe work my way up to being a producer or something. But they gave me a, a job on TV, you know, straight out of swimming on TV. And that was the time back in 2006 where they almost allowed you to have an education on screen and they'd throw me in over here and it was, pardon the pun, but sink or swim and, you know, I very quickly figured out that I was in the right industry because that same feeling I used to get that I loved on the block on race day, that nervous excitement that I had to actively work at to get was happening to me every time I did live TV. It was the exact same focus. It was the exact same adrenaline. It was the exact same flight or fight syndrome and, and sense of um, urgency that I'd had in swimming. And that was the part that I loved. So all of a sudden I felt like I was in the right place because I'd replaced my favourite part of my sport now in my 
hopefully what was going to be my career. Incredible. Incredible. Incredible <laughs> to kind of find that. And uh, we touched on before we jumped on Mike, I mean, part of um, part of that transition period is mm. really reframing your identity. Yes. And it's true for anyone going through transition, whether you're changing careers, whether you're going from um, a career into being a mum or mm. a parent, uh, whatever that yes. transition is for you, it often is around actually getting clear on who am I mm. and what does that mean? And mm. there's certainly been a lot of conversation, particularly for sports, elite sports people yes. and athletes, not just in swimming but in a whole range of different areas, that that's got to shift and that can be really hard sometimes. Mm. What did Definitely. you have to shift in that sense of identity? Because you were Gian Rini, the swimmer. Yes. <laughs> and um, everyone knew you as that. Yes, I think I wasn't aware of it at the time and certainly I had never planned for life after swimming um, and I don't really believe you can. I... I I feel for a lot of athletes because people say, well, you should have been studying at the same time that you were swimming or you should have had a part-time job. As I explained before, it is not just a sport when you're in it at that level. It is your whole life. There is very little time to do anything outside of the structure that is elite sport. And then at the same time, if there is, you are 100% physically, emotionally, mentally exhausted from your training regime. So for me, even though I knew life after had to happen, I still knew that I couldn't exactly plan for it or prepare for it during swimming because I still believe that to give it 100% and to walk away with my most important thing that I needed, which was to have no regrets, I needed to give it everything that I had while I was in it and that life after could wait. So I do believe that I was fortunately in a position to to find my life after quite quickly and that it matched perfectly with, with what I needed um, for myself to, to feel successful. But I also think that, again, being a realist and going, well, this has to happen and I need to find something that is going to work. And once again, I need to rely on my skill set, which is working hard, which is um, being aware of my strengths and weaknesses so that I can work on my weaknesses. Um, and to explain athletes, what I believe, and this sounds very negative when you first hear it, athletes, elite athletes are the most selfish people on the planet. They need to be. But they need to be because that's what makes them and allows them to be so good. So we exist in a world where not only is selfishness expected, it's actually encouraged at that level because everyone in your team around you ex exists in your mind to help you achieve your dreams. So your coach is there to help you achieve, to push you to achieve your dreams. Your parents at this stage, you know, my parents, as I said, were incredibly supportive, but, you know, selfishly, they did so much for me so that I could achieve my dreams. From a gym coach to a physio to a massage therapist to even your relationships, so many people, especially as you get older and you're an elite athlete and the other person in, say, a, a relationship isn't an elite athlete, all of a sudden they find themselves cooking for you, um, you know, cleaning, da-da-da, all these things allowing you to be the best athlete that you can be. So as I said, if you're, that is ingrained in you from such a young age and through those form formidable years that all of a sudden you stop being an athlete and selfishness is not a character trait that is welcomed 
in or the applauded community. <laughs> in a community. Relationships don't survive selfishness. Yeah. Um, jobs, you know, employers don't welcome or encourage or even accept selfishness. Um, friendships don't survive that. All of a sudden, everything that you've known that has worked for you doesn't work in the real world. So I think a lot struggle with that. I certainly think men also struggle with that more than women. Um, from what I've seen, women tend to have even a tiny bit of that maternal instinct, which allows us to still think about and look after others, even when we're in our most selfish phase. So we have a better time of, of transitioning to life after, I believe, in that sense. But um, the sense of identity is very important. And I found myself, I think I was always, you know, even in 2004 at my second Olympics, all of my or most of my team went out and got Olympic rings tattooed on themselves. I didn't. I still don't have that. Um, and that's probably why I don't have any tattoos is the same reason. I it wasn't that I wasn't proud of myself. I was incredibly proud of being an Olympian. It's what I always wanted. They can never take that away from me. Um, but does it define who I am? No. Do I need to see it on myself every day to remind myself of who I am? No. Do I need someone to see it on me and ask me about it? No. It's something that is incredibly important to me and me alone, and it sits comfortably with me. I don't need to revisit it every day for it to, to be special. Um, and so I think that's what a lot of athletes struggle with, is this is something that made me feel so good. This is something that I was successful in. This is something I knew how to do. And how am I ever going to replicate all of those feelings in a job in a career that I'm going to have to do for the rest of my life. So as I said, I feel incredibly fortunate that I found that straight off the bat. And it is something that raises, that's why comebacks for me raise a lot of red flags. For the most part, it's because athletes have tried existing in the real world and tried something else and it hasn't worked. So they come back to something that's safe. And that, as I said, that raises a bit of a red flag for me. It's not always the case, but we have to retire at some point. As I said, you can't be 50 and still doing the elite <laughs> sport game. So yeah. you, we need to find what we're going to do for the rest of the life that satisfies us sooner rather than later. And I think gather around and invite the conversation around that and not leave mm. people to do that on their own. I think mm. that's part of um, that conversation, particularly in sports, mm. um, in the sports arena, is that you don't have to do it on your own. No. And, it's a massive shift because you go yes. from here's a team that can help me yes. and now no one's helping me in the real world. Yes. <laughs> like I have to figure this out. Absolutely. But you almost need to gather those people around you to help and get curious. Yes. And it sounds like, I mean, in a lot of ways it sounds like your parents laid that platform but also that internal kind of curiosity to go, this is who I am. Yes. I often think about it. it's not just um, changing your identity but how do you expand it? You're always going to have been that Olympic athlete. You're always going to have been that yes. sports person but what's the next evolution of that? Yep. What does that actually look like? Yes. And it is, I certainly don't pretend to have any answers because I think it's all very personal. What works for one isn't going to work for another. And I I think the only thing is you touched on it in the fact that 
we need to recognise and the team around the athlete needs to recognise when that time is, is coming and help that transition through. But the athlete themselves also needs to take responsibility for their own life and their own um, future. Because as I said, I knew it was coming. I knew that I couldn't do this forever. While I didn't have a solid plan, I knew that there was going to come a time where I had to explore other options. And so to not be fearful of that or to not, um, I guess, think that you have to have it all figured out straight off the bat because I think you do need to give your sport 100% while you're in it. And I think then that what we call the transition phase is called a transition phase for a reason because you don't just walk straight into being a success at one thing and straight into a success at being the next thing. There needs to be a transition phase. So in that transition phase, not be afraid to fail, which is a really hard thing for an elite athlete to come to terms with because you aren't used to failing you don't want to fail. And it has been the cornerstone of why you do what you do because you're not failing. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Speaking of failing, (laughs) before we jumped on mic, you you talked about um, so many different areas in your life you have been successful, but there's one particular area where you've had moments where you've felt like you were failing. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And have really had to get your head around that. um, Absolutely. You know, as you said, being a 15-year-old, finding the pathway, or at least if you weren't successful, you knew what you had to do. Mm. You knew you had to get back into the field. Uh, And you described that around being a parent. Yes, absolutely. Talk us through what that has felt like for you. Um, I think, first of all, you know, to say that I hadn't failed at things before, I had, but I had a way around them, I think. Uh, You know, when when I was an athlete, it was about okay, well, I need to work harder at this particular thing because I'm I'm not particularly, you know, I'm failing at my skills in my race. I'm, I'm losing time in my, my skills. So that's what I need to work on. Um, there was a, there was a, 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 a positive to the failure, if you like. Whereas when I became a parent for the first time, when my son was born in March, 2014, uh, I'd, I'd had, 12 years of being an elite athlete and then I'd had a huge chunk of time, I'd had eight years of, of being relatively successful in the world of media and I say relatively successful because I'd been allowed to try many different things. <laughs> what I deemed to be successful is I hadn't made, I still had a job. I'm so still therefore, there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so therefore still I, talking to yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> therefore I can't be too bad at what I do and yeah. um, there are opportunities arising. So therefore, you know, I, I'm relatively successful in what I'm what I'm doing. Whereas Sander came along and I straight from day one was like, wow, what, what do I do? <laughs> How does this work? What do you mean they don't send you home from hospital with even at least a basic guide of this is normal, this is not? <laughs> so all of a sudden, second guessing yourself became the going instinct, instinct to sort out. Absolutely. <laughs> what the hell am I doing? What have I got myself into and what am I doing? Um, and it very quickly uh, beca- went from I love this human, this is amazing that that hormonal euphoria <laughs> that comes from being, you know, a new mother um, to, oh, my gosh, I don't know if I actually like my child and I am shit at this 
and I, the harder I try, the worse it seems to get. And the more information that I'm sourcing, the more confused I am becoming. And to explain, Xander was a very healthy big baby. He was nine pound three, um, over four kilos in the new terminology, healthy, not an issue wrong with him, um, fed like a champion. Um, but sleep was a different story. And from very early on, he only needed 40 minutes every three to four hours, night and day. So had no ability to link sleep cycles, had no ability to self-settle, had no ability to um, knock himself out. And, (laughs) you know, people, we've all heard those things of, you know, they fall asleep in the car. He didn't sleep in a car. He didn't sleep in a pram. He didn't sleep. There was in our bed, like if co-sleeping would have worked, I would have done it. You know, there was no judgment or no, this is right, this is wrong at that point. It was whatever worked, but nothing was working. And, you know, everyone I spoke to was like, oh, you need to do this or you need to do that or you need to read this book or you need to, I tried or we tried because my husband, Sam, is an incredible father and we were definitely in this together. Um, We tried everything but nothing was working. Sam and hadn't read the books. That's oh, the problem. He had not read the <laughs> bloody book. Um, and then throw in a few things where, A, I wasn't used to failing, so there was definitely an element of pride of not seeking help early. I was like, okay, I've just got to ride this. And everyone said, you know, you just need to get through the first X amount of weeks and then that milestone went, you just need to get through the X amount of months or, you know, maybe it's a growth spurt, maybe it's this, you know, da-da-da. And every time I would get to a, a point where thinking, okay, it's going to turn and it never would. And then throw in the fact that my um, husband, Sam, was in a job that required him to travel. Uh, so he, he would be away quite often three to four days a week. Uh, I didn't have any family in Melbourne. Um, my mum and dad were on the Gold Coast. I was in Melbourne. Uh, I didn't have any close friends that were going through the same stage. And on top of that, I didn't feel like I fit into my mother's group in the fact that I felt quite a little bit judged in my mother's group. And so I went to one of those and I never wanted to go back because I thought I'm never going to open up here and that's the whole point. So why bother? And uh, so I kind of battled it out for about six months and then it got to the point where nothing was working and I for the first time realised how great a sleeper I actually really was. I always knew I was a great sleeper but I didn't realise how important the role of sleep was in my life. Some people can survive on sleep deprivation, I couldn't. And so all of a sudden six months without any regular sleep and I was losing my shit. I was absolutely becoming irrational and I could tell you that I loved my child but I actually didn't like him. And defining moment for me was Sam had been away for three days. I woke up that morning, Xander had had no more than 40-minute sleep in any one cycle and he you know, was cr- and I was clapping as loud as I could over him in his cot. I was yelling at him. I was could not stop sobbing. And I had already um, made the appointment to start the process of going to sleep school, which they have in, in Melbourne. 
was on the wait list. And I rang Sam, bawling my eyes out at about two o'clock in the afternoon. And I said, I don't care what you're doing. I don't care how important it is. I don't care how far away you are. You need to come home because at this point in time, I'm about to leave your son, not our son, your son, in his cot and I'm about to walk out the front door and drive away and I don't care what happens. I don't care. Yeah. I know he's fine in his cot but I don't care what happens to him. I need him to be someone else's responsibility. That's huge. So I had already gone back to, I went back to work when he was 12 weeks old. It was only two days a week. It was a weekend, meant that for the most part, Sam could look after him. It was only five hours for that Saturday and five hours on a Sunday. But it was also five hours that I got to leave him and actually have a chance to miss him. But it also put a lot of pressure on me with baby brain and sleep deprived to do live TV <laughs> to be on with a 12 week like, old. I just yes. want to curl under Absolutely. a tree. Absolutely. So um, even though it was such a positive, it was also such a negative. And it all played into, again, my feelings of failing. I'm not doing anything well at this point in time. So to, to his credit, Sam came home and I was booked in to go to sleep school the very next week. And sleep school saved our life because all of a sudden, they understood and they were like, it's not anything you're doing wrong. It's not anything your baby's doing wrong. He just needs to learn how to sleep and we're here to teach you. How so. powerful was that for you to hear <laughs> in a moment <laughs> when you're going, I'm, well, the, first thing, I'm the problem? The first thing was we booked in it, you know, you had to be there for registration at 8am on a Monday morning. And I sat down, you know, very composed because I, you know, people do recognise me every every now and again and I'm used to being that one that has all their shit together and sat there and, you know, looked like I had it all together. And the first thing the nurse said was, so how are you? Oh, and I God. just, I couldn't even answer. I burst <laughs> yeah. into tears, like could not yeah. even answer, just burst into tears because so used to putting on a brave face and so used to trying to be that, I've got a new baby, you know, look at me. He's that healthy. one of the first He's, times yeah. someone had asked you that? Yes, it was. And I knew that I didn't have postnatal or yet I didn't think that I had postnatal. I just was so sleep deprived that it was playing into all my insecurities and vulnerabilities. And before sleep, I had never had a sleeping tablet in my life. I'd never needed one, even during, you know, eight days of competition of backing up day after day and getting little sleep because of drug testing and, and late being home and then back up to race again the next morning, my body in the most stressful situations had this amazing ability to switch itself off. If I was stressed, if I was nervous, if I was worried about something, my brain would go, you're going to shut down, you're going to sleep, you're going to sleep through it. And tomorrow morning when you wake up, you're going to have a better idea of how to deal with this situation. An incredible ability that I I knew was good, I didn't realise to what extent, but take that process away from me and I am a stressed out, anxious freakazoid. <laughs> and I was absolutely projecting that onto my baby without even realising it because the more I wanted him to sleep, <laughs> the harder I was making it for him. Um, but, you know, that that five day you're in at sleep school for five days, five nights. They offer you a sleeping tablet on the first two nights because they realise that you need some rationality back if you're going to be able to learn what they're trying to teach you. I did not need sleeping tablet. <laughs> I was like, if you're looking after my baby and he's not my responsibility, I am out. <laughs> um, so, as I said, he didn't sleep until the final night. Um, 
there's a patting technique that they teach you. I had so much practice that they actually asked me if I would allow the other mums to go in there and practice on Xander because their babies had gone to sleep sleep (laughs) early on in the program, you know. Um, They just needed a little bit of tough love. So they were wanting to make sure that when they went home, they knew what to do in case their child regressed. (laughs) I'd had so much practice. They were like, you know what to do. Do you mind if such and such comes in and has a go on Xander? So at least they know what it feels like if their own... I was like, yeah, go for it. (laughs) So he was challenging. Um... Even they said, and it was actually really good for me to hear that he was challenging because, again, if he had gone in there and the first night slept through the night, I would have been like, oh, well. It's still my fault. It's still my fault, (laughs) something that I've been doing wrong. So he didn't sleep until the final night and he slept through the whole night and I thought he'd died (laughs) because for the first time he had slept without waking multiple times. Um, And so it you know, it certainly gave us all the tools. It, it didn't it didn't fix him. I mean, we battled through for another, I want to say, 12 months after sleep school. So he was really nearly two before sleep was not a battle for us, where sleep was not a negative experience. Um, but, you know, I thought, okay, I've been to sleep school. Now that I'm in, so I didn't really enjoy my child until he was nearly two because I got my sleep back when he got his sleep sorted and I could enjoy him. And uh, so we had, you know, he was two and then what was he? He was he was three, just over three, three and three months when his sister came along. So, you know, I had... I had a so what 15 have, like, months of, of enjoyable and, time with him. Matt, what do you have six months of not being pregnant? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and then, uh, yeah, and then Lexi came along and she was what we thought was a dream baby for two weeks and then she woke up to the world and all the same problems started happening and it terrified me because more than anything the second time around, I wanted to enjoy having a baby. I wanted in to enjoy being a mum. And as I said, I hadn't had that because I had felt such feelings of frustration and helplessness and it playing on all my vulnerabilities and insecurities for such a long period of time when he was a baby that I didn't enjoy it. And that's more than anything. That's what I wanted the second time around. I wanted to enjoy being a mum and I wanted to enjoy having a baby because I know they're little for such a short amount of time. And I just felt like I missed out on that the first time by trying to get him to sleep. (laughs) Um, So Lexi, we had two sleep consultants before she slept. (laughs) But at least I got it sorted early that time around. Asking for help did that kick in earlier? Straight away. (laughs) It was ten weeks when I first consulted someone about how early is too early to start sleep training. And I knew that I couldn't apply the same principles that we'd learned at sleep school because Xander was nearly seven months when we went to sleep school. You can't apply that to a 10-week-old baby. Um, So, but I knew that things were already getting out of hand because already I was frustrated, overwhelmed, irrational, sleep deprived. And our little family was falling apart because all of a sudden I'm also angry and frustrated and yelling 
at my three and a half year old, which is not his fault. Um, Sam and I are frustrated and overwhelmed and yelling at each other. And so all of a sudden our little family unit is falling apart because I'm not getting sleep. Which just adds to the sense of frustration, shame. (laughs) Absolutely. Failure all over again. Um, And more than anything, as I said, I just wanted to enjoy being a mum and I wanted to enjoy having a baby. And I knew that that came with, for me, sleep. I have so many amazing friends that I don't know how they do it, where their children are two and not sleeping well. I'm like, I absolutely think you're a superwoman for being able to deal with that. Because I know that I have no ability to deal with what you're dealing with. So I'm not going to give you advice or what worked for me. I'm just saying, you know, if you're after what worked for me, I'll tell you. But I certainly don't think that just because it worked for me, it's going to work for you. And that is my advice is um, you'll get advice from so many different aspects and you will be irrational, so you're not going to know what pieces of advice to take. My advice is to find your village, find your people, find support wherever you can and keep searching until you find the help that works. And I think it is also recognising and celebrating the, the little things. Like yes. I do remember that early haze and, and phase and my kids were, f- you know, fantastic in a lot of ways. Um, but there were times and even early on in their schooling is the morning that I got them to school on time yes. in a uniform <laughs> with some kind of food in their, in their backpack. It was a little internal high That's five going on. Yes. <laughs> and we forget that. And interesting, like, again, to hear yeah. it from yourself, I think is really powerful to go, yes, Olympic level oh. sportsmanship and... I had an hour sleep. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you know, and it's it, celebration. And it screwed me. And, yes. yes. <laughs> Equally yep. As, yep. as important. Oh, absolutely. And I think that as, as women, we are so good at judging ourselves and so good at judging others. And before I became a parent particularly, I had so much judgment about other parents about parents. I wasn't one. About parents. I had so much judgment. I'll never do that when I'm a parent. I will never allow my child to do that when I'm a parent. (laughs) You know, like seeing a child having a tantrum in a supermarket and thinking to the parent, you need to control your child. That child needs discipline. This is what you're doing wrong. My child would never behave like that. And I had a little... um, moment where I will never forget being pregnant with Xander and and being in a cafe with my mum and a child was doing that high-pitched squeal, you know, when they're either frustrated or overtired or bored. And I said to mum, good grief, how do you stop your child doing that? And mum said, oh, don't worry, darling, you and your brother never did that, your children never do that, you won't have to worry about it. Fast forward to me sitting in a cafe with my three-month-old, four-month-old, five-month-old, six-month-old, seven-month-old, doing the high-pitched squeal <laughs> at every opportunity and going, yeah, good one, Mum. Remember, I'll never you have to deal with that. With that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, going to how judgmental I was, oh, you know. Amazing, and now there is no judgment about anything in regards to parenting. You you just cannot judge until you've walked a mile in that person's shoes and you can never walk in someone else's shoes. So take the judgment off the table. Yeah, and that transfers over to so many different so areas. So many different I mean, areas. 
um, not only from newborns, but I believe I'm an expert in teenagers at the moment because I don't have any. Yeah, so. <laughs> completely. <laughs> Until that happens. There is always the next story. stage. That's you just right. get through one and the next stage appears. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> dive in. You touched on before about and, and uh, even coming back to your story around the power that insecurities have on us mm. in this sense of doubt. Mm. Um, and even in your terminology, you said that your belief was that insecurities are the root of all evil. Yes. Can you unpack what that means and where where do you think insecurities, what kind of impact do they have on our world? As you said, I believe they are the root of all evil in this world. I think it's the one personality trait that people, we all have insecurities. There is not a person alive that doesn't have insecurities, but it's how you deal with them, how you... Um, process them and how you let it impact on your relationships with others that is the key catalyst as to whether they are positives or negatives. And I think I came from a good base in the fact that I think without even knowing a about my insecurities, I was aware of them because I think in elite sport, you can't really hide from any uh, weaknesses that you have because you have to be aware of your weaknesses and you almost have to allow them to sit comfortably with you because they're the things you need to be working on if you're going to get better in your chosen sport, in your chosen field. So I was very aware of my weaknesses um, because they were always what I was striving to work on in every training session so that I could be a better athlete, swim faster, win a race. It all came down to that. So I also think that uh, I... I have a bit of that personality where I, going into media, I, I'm i not afraid to make a fool of myself or laugh at myself. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not arrogant enough to think that I've, I've got all the answers or that I know how to do everything well. So, of course, um, that sense of, of feeling insecure, it only came down to if I felt that, as I said, I didn't really have that in swimming. I didn't feel insecure in myself in swimming because I could always work at my insecurities. And then when I came out of swimming, I was fortunate enough that I, I was al- almost allowed to try and fail at so many different things within my job description that I didn't feel like my insecurities were a big issue. So it was only becoming a parent, really, that insecurities and probably also um, until I met my husband and the one non-negotiable I had, the thing that I found the most, I found so attractive about him, he has such a strong sense of self he more than anyone has very few insecurities because he has this um, thought process that, well, if someone doesn't like me, that's their loss. <laughs> and I love that. And I oh, wish that we all had that. To not, that exactly right. He's like, not everyone's going to like me. That's a given. Not everyone's going to like me. Not everyone's going to like who I am. Not everyone's going to like hanging out with me. Not everyone's going to want to be my friend. But, oh, well. There's plenty more fish in the sea. So that sense of self, that sense of who I am, and um, I certainly don't have it all figured out, but I'm not a bad person either, was so attractive to me because especially I think in the world of media, there are a lot of insecure people 
And that is the industry because the industry is designed to almost make you feel insecure so that you uh, will say yes to everything. And at contract negotiation time, you will sign for whatever they are telling you you'll sign for because you just want a job and you're just grateful to have a job. And um, so insecurities and vulnerabilities are played upon in a lot of industries, but particularly the media because it's so visual. It's so not only about who you are and what you've got to say, but what you look like. What's hot at yes. the moment and what's not. Absolutely, what's, yes. And you can be gone in a, yep. overnight. Absolutely. Um, and does someone like you? Does someone like you? And I loved that I had a really um, interesting conversation when I was first starting in TV with Sam Newman, who um, Queenslanders might not know as much, but um, an incredible player, AFL player for Geelong in his time, one of the immortals, and then in TV almost plays this villainous um, persona, if you like, but people think it's him on the footy show. Uh, And he has such a strong sense of self. And he said to me, Gian, remember this. In the world of media, the way that I operate is that 50% of your audience are going to love you, 50% of your audience are going to hate you. You need to let that sit comfortably with you. Not everyone is going to like you. But let me tell you this, I've found that it's the 50% that hate you who are going to be far more loyal because they are going to be want to be watching you to see you stuff up. <gasps> what a way to look at it. That's what incredible. What a way to look at it. And you cannot be an insecure person and have that outlook. But I really took it on board because I want everyone to like me. I certainly don't have a thick skin. I have a very thin skin. I take everything personally. Um, I think about things long after they happen and, oh, God, I could have said this better or done that better or I should have said this or why did I say that when that came up and um, second-guess myself. But I, I have always remembered that thing of if you want to be in media, you have to remember that not everyone's going to like you and you're not always going to say something that's going to please someone. And I don't believe that I can do my job, particularly when talking to athletes and interviewing athletes and talking about an athlete, I can't always worry about what someone else is going to think about what I'm saying because I have been there. I know what they're going through. And for someone who hasn't been there and someone who hasn't been through that, that's not going to make sense to them. But it makes sense to me. And more importantly, it makes sense to the person that I'm talking about or to. So in that respect, I've got to trust my gut. What do you think, even just practically, because I think it's a big, it doesn't matter what industry, as you said before, every single one of us has insecurities. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the the biggest fear is that someone's going to say what I believe about myself. Yes. Is that I stuffed up. Why, why am I even doing this? I don't deserve to be here. Mm-hmm. I'm somehow someone's giving me this royal I role. I am a fraud. I'm a fraud. And I'm going to be found out. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So mm. are there any kind of practicalities that have helped you aside from mm. just that? belief of mm. it's okay if people don't like me. And yes. again, that can be rationally you go, yeah, I get that. But in your heart of oh. hearts, it's very different to feel that. What's helped you or what advice would you give? I think um, I certainly am what you just said that I can say, I don't care if people don't like me. I That is not 
that that still doesn't sit comfortably with me. I don't believe that in my heart of hearts. Until you see that tweet or Abs- the social and I was about media. To say, social media is a great <laughs> ability to, yeah. um, yes, when you're in the public eye, <laughs> Twitter particularly has an amazing way of bringing you down very quickly. And still to this day, I quite often don't um, read Twitter or get on Twitter when I'm working in an intense environment because I just can't take that on board at that point in time. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do my job. So um, I revisit Twitter after the fact and then get angry and (laughs) want to explain myself to all these people that it happened a week ago, for God's (laughs) sake, you know. So I have to build a bridge and get over it. But um, I'm still very bad at that uh, um, because I'm all up for constructive criticism. I still can't deal with just plain criticism. Um, because again, I have an element of being a perfectionist because that's what I needed to be, to be good at my sport. And that's what I need to be, to be good at my job is to, to do my research and, and have that covered, have that scenario covered. So I don't like being caught out or I don't like people thinking that I've been caught out. So I still have to try and find ways around it and to sit comfortably with it. And I don't know if it ever will sit comfortably with me, but I also think that's that what that's what drives me to be better at my job. Because if I didn't care, then I wouldn't be good at my job. So it, it's got to, you've got to find that middle ground and that balance. My, um, probably my, my, best bit of advice around insecurities is to take the leap of faith. Get outside of your comfort zone because it's only when we're outside our comfort zone that we grow. And I have to constantly keep reminding myself of that. You know, if a job comes up, I'm like, I can't do that job. I'm not qualified to do that job. And someone um, said this the other day and it really resonated with me. We as women are particularly bad at championing ourselves. And um, it was Jamila Rizvi, uh, I was listening to her speak at a public event and she has written a book called Not Just Lucky. Women tend to pass off their achievements as, oh, I was just lucky, I was in the right place at the right time, I was fortunate that this happened, fortunately this da-da-da-da-da. And I find myself talking like that all the time and underplaying the skill set or the amount of work that we've done to get there. But she said this incredibly um, amazing bit of research where men will apply, if they see a job advertised, they will apply if they meet 50 or 60% of the criteria. Women will only apply for the job if they meet 95% or all of the criteria. If they don't meet every single aspect of the criteria, they won't even try They won't even apply for the job. And so we have to get past that. You know, it's like, I'm not, I'm not skilled enough for that job. Whereas we, my biggest piece of advice would be have a crack. If you don't get the job. You'll be right where you are. Exactly. But you might (laughs) actually get the job, you know? Um, So just, just take that leap of faith and go, oh, well, it's better to have tried and fail than to have never have tried at all. And that is always my philosophy now in life is if an opportunity presents itself, take it, have a go, have a crack. You're not always going to work, have a crack. I've heard that statistic before and I actually have a a good friend of mine and she um, 
and I love the way that she framed it up. She said, if you meet the criteria for that job or that role mm. or that opportunity, you actually need to apply for the job above. You're overqualified. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually about you. You need to go yeah. two steps above. That's like, perfect. That's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. Just to kind of... Yeah, just put yourself back yourself. Out there. Yes, and for me, the confidence I had in an as an athlete of backing myself on such a big stage, I have to remind myself to find that again in so many aspects of my day to day life. And you know, I do a lot of public speaking. People would be amazed to hear that I still get anxious the night before I'm about to do some public speaking. I still second guess myself and I wonder if today's the day I'm going to be caught out or people think I'm a fraud or... And then I get up there and I do it and I walk away and I feel empowered and I go, why do I second guess myself? And I actually am good at this and that's why I get asked back to do another one. But next one happens and I go through the same process again. So it's not like you ever get it figured out. You just got to keep pushing yourself into the uncomfortable part of out of your comfort zone, which is where you grow and learn and challenge yourself. And that's where you become a a better person and a, a better, I think, better at your job. And you touched on it before. It's almost like if you don't feel that, then the care disappears and therefore the product Yes. He's actually yes. probably not as good anyway. Yes. And so the nerves are part of, I care about this. Yep. I'm turning up and I'm doing the work and reframing it yeah. like that. Yep. What's the thing that's exciting you about what's next? Um, I think the fact, uh, it, it's, it's funny because again, the goals and my goals and my um, dreams have changed so much over the course of, of my life. And what I, I thought I wanted from when I was 35 is different to now that I am 35. And uh, what I wanted and what I thought I wanted before I became a parent are completely different now that I am a parent. Um, for me, at this point in time now, I'm really trying to enjoy my children because again, they are little for such a short amount of time. And uh, I want them to have all the opportunities that I had growing up and the incredible childhood that I had growing up. Um, But trying to balance that with realising, you know, at some point I felt uh, quite guilty about the fact that I travel a lot for work. I'm away from home a lot. I'm I'm away from my kids quite often. Um... Am I doing them a disservice by being away all the time? You know, uh, I felt guilty for not being a 100% hands-on mum. But then I absolutely, in my heart of hearts, know more than anything else that I'm a better mum when I'm fulfilled in my own sense of self. And to do that, I need to be working. I need to be engaging with adults and engaging in subjects that I feel passionate about and um, empowering people or allowing others to tell their story and that's what makes me feel alive and that's what makes me feel um, worthy and happy. And if I feel worthy and happy, then I'm going to be a better mum because that's the traits that I'm going to pass on to my children. So I'm still all about trying to figure out the balance and the juggle. Um, I don't know if you ever properly get that. I don't think it exists. Uh, I do 100% believe that that um, that insight, if you like, that you can have it all, just not at the same time. And I 100% believe that. Um, my All the balls 
you know, juggling balls are there and I am catching whichever one is about to fall first. (laughs) So definitely still trying to figure it out. And as I said, I don't know if I ever will figure it out. Um, But at the moment, my kids are happy and healthy. Um, I'm in a job that fulfills me. My husband is in a job that fulfills him. Uh, And so at the moment, I feel that we're winning. (laughs) And they're they're the criteria you just keep coming back to. And a good night's sleep occasionally. Yeah, yeah, if we can throw that in. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I put that in healthy. Yes. <laughs> that, is, that is a non-negotiable of healthy. Critical. <laughs> sleep. <laughs> I want to come full circle. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Uh, again, it comes back to my, my very first... Um, realisation of what I wanted out of my sport is what I want out of life. I want no regrets. A standout life for me is someone that hopefully I get the chance to live to a very ripe old age. I want to be here for a long time. That is my whole um, motivation for being active and healthy is so that I can be here for a long time. Uh, And so a standout life is for me, one day, hopefully at my, as I've said, a very ripe old age, knowing that the end is near and looking back and saying, haven't I had a wonderful life and a wonderful existence? And I have no regrets. If I had to do it all over again, I would do it exactly the same. And I pushed myself. I challenged myself. I was a good person. I did right by myself and by others in whenever I could. I did the best of my ability and I lie here now with children, grandchildren and hopefully great-grandchildren that are well-adjusted and now have the opportunities to live the life that I did in their own way. That's a standout life for me. I'll sign up for that. (laughs) Sounds good. Sounds beautiful. (laughs) Gianna, it's been such a delight. Thank you for sharing your story. Oh, thank you, Ali. Thank you. Loved it. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.